and I turn around and scream at the top of my lungs, would anyone like a piece of Jerry Garcia's birthday cake? Hey now, welcome to Dead Tour Tales, episode 25, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Wall of Sound. Today we have a fun conversation with Jason Scherner. Jason owns Phil Lesh's legendary bass, Osiris, or better known as Mission Control, which Phil played with the Wall of Sound. Phil played that bass from 1974 to 1979. Jason also owns three other of Phil's basses that he played during his tenure with the Grateful Dead, as well as some other beautiful guitars, including the iconic pretzel guitar made by the late, great Rick Turner. And that led us to a nice conversation about Rick Turner's lasting legacy, as well as the grateful the great works of Grateful Guitars Foundation and Andy Logan. Uh, we also talk Jerry Garcia's birthday cake, his friendship with uh, Rudson Shirtliff, and much, much more. This episode comes with a nice video since Jason was kind enough to uh, show us some nice close-ups and get into some detail of the beautiful inlay work and beautiful craftsmanship of Mission Control and the pretzel guitar. So uh, that's available to our patreon subscribers uh if you are one thank you so much if you're not you might want to think about becoming one thank me later uh okay let's get down to business so don't forget to check out uh all our awesome merch at alwaysahootstudios.com and check out our previous episodes as well uh, we have lots of fun episodes with some killer guests that uh, you'll want to give a listen. So uh, thanks so much for your support. Please enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did having it. Buckle up, kids. It's Dead Tour Tales time. Hey, now. Welcome to Dead Tour Tales. Super stoked about today's guest, uh, being the big Phil fan that I am. Uh, I'm honored to have the one and only Jason Scherner in the studio today. Uh, Jason is a very generous contributing member of our community and a board member of Grateful Guitars Foundation. And, uh, I don't want to give away too much. I'll let Jason uh, dive in and, and tell you his story and uh, some of the fun toys that he gets to play with on a regular basis. Uh, so Jason, welcome to Dead Tour Tales. Thanks for having me, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, coming live out of San Diego, right? That's correct. Right on. Okay, cool. Um, great. So let's get right to it. So uh, I see hanging on the wall behind you. I mean, how do we not talk about that right off the bat, right? Uh, the one and only Mission Control hanging on the wall right behind you. Uh, the bass that Phil played 1974 to 1979. Uh, legendary. Uh, played with a wall of sound. Uh, and this just so happens to be the 50th anniversary of the Wall of Sound, right? 
in fact, it was it was built as part of the wall of sound. Wow, kind of meant to control uh, some of it, some of the sound through it. Yeah, the um, it's interesting. The actual name that was given to the base when it was built was Osiris. Osiris, and right. there's uh, an inlay of the Egyptian god Osiris on the back of the headstock, and um, um, suitably, um, Osiris is known as the king of the dead. Oh, but um, it was the deadheads who nicknamed the instrument Mission Control because they would see Phil uh, touch buttons or knobs on the on the base, and they would hear what he was doing through the wall. So the deadheads dubbed it Mission Control for the wall of sound. Wow, that's cool. I didn't realize that. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the same kind of time period uh, or before that Phil was doing Sea Stones with uh, Howard Wales? Was it Howard same, Wales? Same. No, no, it was uh, Ned Lagan. Ned Lagan, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And yes, the, the Sea Stones stuff was done at the same period and with this instrument. With Mission Control, very cool. Okay, right on. Yes. Well, let's, uh, I, wanna, I wanna get into how you came to own Mission Control as well as three other of Phil's 20 bases that he played with the Grateful Dead. So uh, I wanted to get into that in a little bit, but if you wanna take us down memory lane, go back into how did you get into the Grateful Dead? Uh, tell us a little bit about your history and your love, how you fell in love with the music and the scene and what got you to this point? Well, my, my very good friend uh, that I went to high school with, uh, who I used to take acid with and, and do bong hits with when we were uh, high school kids, um, wound up moving out to California. And uh, after he discovered the Grateful Dead at some shows in, in Maryland, and uh, my first semester of college, uh, he encouraged me to come out and, and see the Grateful Dead in California. And I went to my first run of Grateful Dead shows uh, in, at the end of 1990, the New Year's run of, of 1990. And um, need, needless to say, it, it changed my life. Um, I still remember... Uh, just the experience of walking in to my first show, uh, even before the band came on stage, I was already uh, pretty enamored with the scene. I remember coming over the the bridge uh, from the BART into the Oakland Coliseum parking lot and seeing people juggling and riding around on unicycles and and you know just just the general circus milling around and um there really is get... there really is nothing uh, there really is nothing like a grateful dead show inside and out it's right and this was still in the bill graham era so it was it was really sort of at a at a certain at, at a certain point in in our community's history that was really spectacular so as we were as we were walking into the oakland coliseum we ran into a guy that that my buddy knew, older guy, um, and he introduced me. The guy's name was Moish. Uh, I'm sure 
people of a certain age would, would know this guy. He was around the scene. And uh, my friend introduced me and told him it was my first show. And Moish said, can I have him? And I kind of looked over, you know, at my buddy. And my buddy said, take him. So Moish grabbed me and took me around um, basically a full lap around the outer corridors of the Oakland uh, Coliseum and probably introduced me to 100 people. And every single one of those people uh, told me how happy they were that I was there and that I was about to see my first show and how excited they were for me. And um, by the time I had gotten all the way around the building and, and back to my friends, I was, I was more than ready for this experience. And um, the show opened up uh, Jack Straw Sugary. Wow. And the Sugary is still to this day probably the best one I ever saw. Just absolutely smoking, powerful, crushing sugary. And at a certain point in that sugary, um, I felt like if I stopped dancing, I was going to throw off every single person in the entire room and, and on the stage. I felt so connected to every living being in, in the building um, that it was a feeling that, I mean, I, I get goosebumps right now just thinking about it. And right at that moment, my friend looked over at me and he went, because he knew I was hooked, you know? Right, And right, yeah. um, I mean, even at the set break, we were already talking about the, the next run of shows uh, to go to, even though we still had the second set of that night and, and three more nights after that to go, including New Year's. Um, and so funny, that first experience... Isn't it funny? Isn't ahead. it funny? Sorry to interrupt you. Isn't it funny how, no. how, how that happens? I noticed right away... Uh, when you started talking about your first show, you didn't say my first show. You said my first run of shows. Like what right. other what other fandom, quote unquote, uh, is that such a common occurrence? You know, it's like right off the bat, it, you Absolutely. know, there's no like, oh, I went to a show. And then, then the next, you know, three years later, I saw them again. It was like I went to my first show and saw two or three more that same, you know, uh, that same week. Uh, and then I, you know, by the time the next year came around, I've already seen 17, uh, you know, this band 17 times, like, you know, uh, right. and, and what a great time, uh, New Year's 90. Like, I mean, what a great time to be experiencing that band. And for the first time uh, in, in Oakland and, you know, the, the, the top of Brent's like, you know, the height of his, his power and wow. And young and impressionable. I'm sure a head full of psychedelics of some kind, like you can't impress. I can feel that experience. I'm sure many people listening to this podcast have had very similar experiences and can feel it too. It's like, it becomes part of our DNA, you know, but that sounds like a foreign language almost to somebody that hasn't had that depth of experience it's like how do you relay that to somebody on that same level it's just not possible without experiencing yourself sorry to it's definitely it, one of those things that that fits that that cliche if you know you know yeah yeah and those of us that know uh, you know feel sorry for for those that don't yeah um but yeah it was it it, it changed my life immediately yeah, clearly clearly <laughs> Oh
So, uh, as any deadhead can tell you, there are countless stories from my years of seeing the Grateful Dead. But one of my very, very favorites is um, we were at the the Palace of Auburn Hills in uh, outside of Detroit for Garcia's last uh, birthday show, which was the first uh, of of August, um, 1994. I was there. And, um, so I'm there with a buddy of mine and, um, I ran into this guy that I knew who worked in catering. And I said to him, Hey man, you work in catering. I'd really like a piece of Jerry Garcia's birthday cake. If you could hook that up. And he said, yeah, I can hook that up. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it out to you. Where, where are your seats? So I told him where my seats were. And, um, uh, at the set break, I see him walking over and he's got, uh, something under some foil and I'm like, okay, here we go. Some of Jerry's birthday cake. And, uh, he gets over there and he, he opens up the foil and it's some kind of like just regular food, some kind of like, you know, entree type food, some kind of meat or vegetable, whatever it was. And I was like, you know, what's this? I, I want, I want some of Jerry's birthday cake. And he says, well, I thought you guys might be hungry. So I brought you some food. I said, dude, we're not hungry. Like, I just want some of Jerry's birthday cake. Like, thanks, but, but no thanks, you know, birthday cake. So uh, the next time I see him is during drums in space. And here he comes with another thing with some foil over it. And I'm like, okay, here we go. He gets over, he hands it to me, I pull back the foil, and it's like some kind of chicken pasta. And I'm like, dude, Jerry's birthday cake. Like, you know, what's up? He's like, oh, I thought you guys, I figured I'd just, you know, bring this out. Breaking you, you or hungry. what? And I'm like, look, man, not hungry. I want a piece of Jerry's birthday cake. So show ends, encore ends, lights come up. And all of a sudden, I see him walking down the aisle, and he's carrying, like, a square yard of Jerry's birthday cake. It's like the whole cake, this, like, really moist, spongy chocolate cake with this, like, white whipped cream icing. And there's a royal flush in, in frosting on each corner with all the different suits of cards. And there was, you know, a a chunk of it was gone, but a a ton of it was there. And he walks up and he hands me this thing. And my buddy and I are kind of overwhelmed by this giant. The entire tray. And so we each take a, a part of it in one hand and we're walking out and we're just shoving handfuls of Jerry's birthday cake down our throat. It was delicious. And we were just like. (laughs) chowing on so we get outside and i've already realized that this thing is not going to fit in the tiny little car that we've got on tour and it starts to sprinkle and so i turn to my buddy and i say have you had enough and he says yeah i've had enough and i said okay and i pulled it over and i had it you know like, like this and i walked over to the trunk of a car in the middle of the parking lot. And I set it down on the trunk of this car and I turn around and scream at the top of my lungs, 
Would anyone like a piece of Jerry Garcia's birthday cake? And I stepped away as people swarmed the cake. And uh, I'll never, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I'll never forget how that cake tasted. I'll never forget just the whole experience. So, you know, yeah, that's, a special that, moment. that's just one little nugget of the thousands of experiences that I had in my, my five years of seeing the, the Grateful Dead. I wonder if there's anybody out there that saved a piece of that cake and still has it like tucked away in a, a little Tupperware somewhere, moldy piece of Jerry's cake stashed in their safe. Right. I, I think, I think between the rain and the, and the Wooks, um, it was probably demolished uh, pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Um, that thing didn't stand a chance. <laughs> but it lives in my memories forever. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. And, uh, and, and kind know, of foreshadowing, um, right? Uh, that, for that you to was, have a, a, a piece of Jerry's you know, kind birthday of a little, cake. And... A little snapshot of what it was like to be out there and, and be part of that community. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, a community that I... I, I try to participate in and 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 uh, help and love and and be part of uh, every day. Right on, and, and almost a little foreshadowing too, right? Of what was to come years later uh, with you having a piece of Jerry's birthday cake, and now all these years later having, say, a couple slices of Grateful Dead history. Right. I I've always been involved in um, dealing with memorabilia. Um, uh, the crew chief of the Grateful Dead was Ramrod Shirtliff, and his mm-hmm. son Rudson was my best friend. Uh, we met in, oh, in wow. 1993 and became very, very close friends. And he was one of my dearest and, and, and most trusted and, and most beloved friends uh, until the day he died. And um, uh, and how when, did how did you two how did you two meet and become friends? From well, I knew his girlfriend, or? and she and Rudson's, I went to Rudson's Vegas girlfriend? in '93 together, and uh, we were sharing uh, a room because we got this package for two people, and we also had the the friends fly free thing that they did on Southwest Airlines, and. So my girlfriend was like, who's this chick you're going to Las Vegas with? And Rudson was like, who's this dude you're coming to Las Vegas with? And so uh, my girlfriend took us to the airport so she could meet his girlfriend. And uh, and she was once she saw that there was no vibe there between us, she, she was cool mm-hmm. with it. She took us to the airport. And then Rudson had said, I want to meet this guy as soon as you guys get there. So she walked up. Uh, and introduced me to Rudson through a chain link fence um, at the Silver Bowl uh, at the at the 93 Vegas shows. And the first thing I said to him was, dude, I'm not trying to bang your girlfriend. I've, I've I got my own girlfriend. <laughs> and he chuckled. And um, and from that point on, we just hit it off and became very, very close. And when Ramrod was in the hospital dying. Uh, I helped them to broker a guitar, um, a guitar that Bob Dylan had given to Ramrod that he had played some on the Dylan and Dead tour. And I helped them get a lot of money for it. 
And of course, because of the situation, I didn't want anything, anything from it at all, other than for it to help their family. And after that happened, literally from his deathbed, uh, Ramrod told Rudson to have me help him to deal with all of the uh, stuff that he had saved and to, to sell enough of this memorabilia and these artifacts to pay off their family farm, which we did with the first sale that I curated of Grateful Dead memorabilia in 2007. And from that point, I've been involved in dealing with artifacts and memorabilia. Um, it was something I was trained to do basically from a young age. My father was an antique European weapons collector, and he was the best in the world at what he did. So he taught me everything I know about research and gathering provenance and um, understanding artifacts and their historical significance. And I applied that to our Grateful Dead world and community, especially because the artifacts from the Grateful Dead community are not only significant to the Grateful Dead world, but are significant to the music world in general. I mean, the Absolutely. wall of sound proved the whole concept of line array for live performances and um, all the all the ways that the Grateful Dead changed the, the industry and how they structured their record contracts, how they dealt with promoters, how they dealt with merch, how they dealt with ticket sales, how they made money selling tickets more so than making records and so on and so forth. So the significance of the Grateful Dead in the overall music world can cannot be overstated. Um, and so on on some level that that led into um, my involvement with with instruments. I um, found out about a, a, a multi-channel preamp built for the Grateful Dead by Ultrasound. And I was asked by a friend to go and check this thing out and see if it was legit. And um, I sent pictures of it to Dennis Leonard, known as Wiz, who is a very dear friend of mine and a, a legend in the Grateful Dead community. And I said, do you, do you recognize this? He's like, yeah, I recognize that. Don Pearson and I built that. It's phenomenal. Go get it. So I went and answered this ad uh, about this multi-channel preamp to purchase it for a friend of mine. And when I was there, the guy said, do you want to see Phil Lesh's bass? And I said, yeah, I, I do. And so he pulled out uh, what turned out to be Phil's very first Ken Smith bass, which was oh wow, the, the, yeah. the, the, of the three that he had, it was the one that was actually custom built for him and a, a one of a kind instrument. And although it, it was a series of events uh, before I actually got my hands on it, the first thing I did was reach out to Phil's uh, manager uh, at the time, who I knew very, very well, and told him I had found it. And uh, at first he said, no, 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 we have that base. And I said, no, you've got, you've got the other ones. You don't have this one. You don't have the one that was custom built for him and that was used 
with Branford at Nassau and 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 did wow. that whole spring ninety tour and and played so many just legendary shows. And um, uh, when they realized what I had found, uh, it was offered back to Phil, but he he didn't want to buy it. Uh, and it had come out of a storage default situation. So he had no legal rights to it. And the guy who I originally met who had it wound up selling it to somebody else. And I wound up buying it from the person he sold it to. Okay. And then uh, very few people knew that I had that instrument uh, at first. But uh, Andy Logan, who is the founder of the Grateful Guitars Foundation, um, knew I had it. And he had recently purchased Alligator uh, at the auction that took place in uh, mid-December of, of uh, 2019. And the folks who had Mission Control, uh, which was Gruen Guitars, and they had hired um, a company called uh, Analogger uh, to sell it for them because the idea was that it was going to go to Jim Ursay, who had bought Tiger. And this guy right. had brokered things to Jim Ursay previously. And what wound up happening was uh, there was a big gap in the negotiations between uh, those guys and Jim Ursay while the appraisal could be done on it to justify the asking price. And because the appraisal took so long, because so much research had to be done because of its historical significance and all the different uh, you know, places that it showed up in, in Grateful Dead history, um, it took them a while to get back to, to Jim Ersay with the appraisal. And I guess his reaction was, well, I'm going to take as long to get back to you on this negotiation as you took to get back to me on the appraisal, or that's the way it was sort of explained to me. And so in the meantime, while there was a gap in these negotiations, um, apparently they reached out to Andy and Andy told them, well, I just, I just spent a lot of money on alligator. Um, why don't you talk to my buddy, Jason, who already has one of Phil's bases. And I wound up buying it um, in that situation and sort of, you know, buying it out from under this, this billionaire yeah. uh, who I would have never <laughs> been able to outbid in a million years. But he, right. he kind of he kind of dropped the ball. And uh, while the ball was on the ground, I picked it up. And right um, yeah. uh, so that was sort of how uh, that situation came to be. And uh, I, I, I didn't like the idea of it going to, a, uh, going to a football stadium in Indiana and hanging on a wall in an office. And, yeah. uh, and then when I got it, um, shortly after I got it, I was able to, through all, it's a whole other long story, but I was able to track down the original pickups that had been in the base and had been pulled out of it in the early 80s after it had stopped being used. And um, I wound up talking to Rick Turner about uh, reinstalling the pickups and doing some other um, corrections to some of the restoration that had been done by Gruen Guitars. 
And that was how I got to know Rick Turner, which was an, an unbelievable blessing. Rick was not only just uh, an incredible genius and a Renaissance man, but a really wonderful guy. And we got very, very close during the last few years of his life. And we were able to uh, make the restoration of the instrument, uh, as we would say, just exactly perfect. And mm. we took it back to its 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 earliest days, and um, in fact, took it back to exactly the way it was during the recording of Blues for Allah. And um, the reason I say I say that as opposed to 1974 was because um, Doug Irwin had built a pickup ring for it that was koa and abalone. And it was only on there during 1975, and it's in very few pictures, and it's hard to identify. But Doug actually reached out to me, and I knew Doug for a while, and he'd seen some pictures of it online, and he said, you know, where's, where's my pickup ring, essentially? And sent me a couple pictures of it with the pickup ring that, nobody had ever seen because they were in Doug's, you know, possession. And um, so we started talking about it. And he said, I have the same template. Uh, I have the original template for when I made that still. And I said, wait, you, you made the pickup ring? And he said, yeah, I made it as a sort of a gift for, for Phil and, and to do something uh, for Rick, uh, who had taught Doug how to build guitars. And, and Doug has had the incredible love and respect for Rick. So he had done this pickup ring and I said, well, could you, could you duplicate the pickup ring for me? And he put me on hold for about five minutes and then came back and said, not only will I make you um, a duplicate of the pickup ring, I have the same piece of wood and the same bag of abalone shell that I used to make the original. So I'm going to all those years later, all those years wow. later, which is not unusual for Doug, having gotten to know him. He, the guy never gets rid of anything. You wouldn't believe the relics wow. that are in his shop. So I thought it was so beautiful with that pickup ring that uh, that I decided that that was going to be the ending point for our our restoration, that it was going to basically land where it was in, in 1975. Um, and, and then, uh, because I had those two instruments, there was somebody who reached out to me uh, with another Phil Lesh bass, um, one of the only two that Phil ever gave away, and uh, asked me if I, if I wanted to buy it. And of course I did. Uh, but we also wanted to make sure we weren't stepping on Phil's toes. So an email was sent to Phil asking if he had any problem with me buying the instrument. And um, the seller said, well, let's give him a few days to, to respond. And I said, no, let's give him two weeks to respond. Let's give him lots of time to respond. And it was also said in the email, something like, if I don't hear from you, I'll assume everything is, is cool to move forward. So two weeks later, um, we, we finalized the deal and it was actually dropped off at a Jerry's Middle Finger show in Berkeley because the next right. show they were coming to was in San Diego and they actually brought it down to me and delivered it to me at the belly up. And uh, when it was delivered to them, it was, all, it was all kind of sealed up 
and they were told not to open the box and that 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 they wouldn't they couldn't be told what was in the box they just said take this to jason so when they got there they were like what's in the box and and i opened it up and showed them phil's uh 1981 gnl base which he used for all of the year you know 1982 and um uh, and that uh was was it's kind of a situation where they seem to attract each other. And uh, the fourth one, uh, which is the the modulus that was a collaboration, the only ever collaboration between Doug Irwin and modulus bases. Um, that was one that Phil had also given away. And, um, and I was aware of him giving away. This was during like the Terrapin Crossroads days. He gave it to somebody he was very close to. And that person wound up uh, really needing some needing some cash. And they came to me and they said, I have this instrument. Um, this was this was after I had the first one, but I, had, I didn't have any others at the time. And he said, um, I need I need to sell this. And I said, well, let me see how much money I can put together. And I scraped up every dime I could. And um, I went to to my friend and I said, this is how much money I've come up with but it's not enough. And he said, well, I need the money. I'll, I'll take it. Let's do the deal. And I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm your friend. And I'm going to tell you as your friend, do not accept this money from me for this base, sell it to somebody else for more money. It's just not enough. And I would never feel good about it. So he wound up selling it to somebody else for more money and told them at the time, if you ever sell this, I want Jason Scherner to get first shot at it. And 10 years later, uh, it became available and it was offered to me uh, and I purchased it. And it was a lot more money than it would have been uh, 10 years before. And of course, I had to wait 10 years to get it. But I felt like my integrity and uh, my friendship uh, remained intact. And it's a, it's a pretty important. spectacular instrument um this oh, base wow. was built in 1985 and played by phil from the um sort of the the fall of 85 until spring of 87 and it was the base that was used to record in the dark so when you hear that first little intro of bass on touch of gray that's that's mm -hmm. this that's this bass uh, and cool. you know all those all those songs that sort of launched the Mega Dead era, Helena Bucket yeah. and and Black Muddy River and um, you know all all of those Throwing Stones, all those great tunes on that record were recorded with this bass, and it's a really unique instrument. It was um, a situation where Doug Irwin uh, carved out of mahogany what's called a a plug. And so you, you, you basically, you make an instrument, a wooden instrument, and uh, it was, uh, you know, this body style and, and the neck, which was carved by Doug, and it, and it was a set neck, which means the, the neck was glued in a certain way. And after a certain point, that was sort of the way all of Doug's instruments were, were built. And there's sort of a signature neck joint on those, on Doug's instruments. And so it was made, uh, carved this, this instrument essentially out of mahogany. And then they took that plug at modulus and they 
molded around it and they made a mold from that plug. And then the plug is removed from the mold and apparently removed in, in many, many pieces. So the plug was utterly destroyed in the process of making the mold. And then this instrument was molded. And it's the, it's the only one that was ever built this way. It's all one piece of graphite. All one piece. And wow. you can see that there, the neck joint is wow. there because that's the way yeah. the, the plug was carved. But it's all, it's all one piece. And wow. um, it's the only instrument ever built this way by Modulus. And according to Jeff Gould, who was the founder of Modulus, um, it was the most difficult build that Modulus ever did. And they were supposed to make a guitar for Garcia in the same fashion. But this one was so difficult to build that they scrapped the project and told Jerry they weren't going to do it. So even though it's wow. all graphite and it's a Modulus, it has the the neck feel and the the curves and the lines and the overall ergonomics uh, of an Irwin. So of an Irwin. we kind of affectionately refer to it as the Modwin. And Modwin. Um, yeah. uh, Skip <laughs> from Dark Star played it just just uh, the other night, Friday night in San Diego. They did a 1986 show, and this was the bass that Phil played at the show that wow. they recreated. So it was really fun to have Skip uh, play this thing uh, and absolutely crush it. I mean, it's a it's a great sounding instrument, and the the low B string, uh, which is what you get on a a five string or a six string on the, on the top, the the low frequency lowest frequency string, is just pure thunder, just just thunder. Wow. And because it's all graphite and all the parts are are graphite, um, it's very light for being uh, a long scale six string bass. As so, opposed to a heavy wood, wood right. bass. Well, and, and yeah. you know, modulus bases are, are graphite necks and they're either net through with wings glued on the side or they're a bolt on neck on a, on a wooden body. And, um, but all of these instruments are all based on the principles uh, developed by Rick Turner way back when. Rick Turner was the guy who sort of dreamed up the concept of laminated neck through sandwiched wing uh, instruments and the concept of the scalloped brass nut and, and the concept of creating your own pickups from scratch, um, active electronics, uh, these were not, they, these things were basically unheard of when Rick started uh, constructing instruments that way. In fact, this one right here, known as pretzel number one, is nice. the very wow. first uh, handmade guitar that Rick ever, ever built from, from scratch. Uh, this was built after Peanut, um, but... Um, but Peanut was basically a, 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 a bunch of parts from an SG that Rick built a new body for because the body had gotten smashed. But this was the first laminated neck through, uh, like I said, mm. sandwiched wings glued on the sides. Uh, mm. The first of the scalloped brass nut, uh, which is mm -hmm. you know characteristic of all the 
Irwin instruments and all the alembic instruments and even even the Ken Smith is a laminated neck through sandwiched wing active electronics scalped brass nut um, example of how Rick Turner really sort of birthed the whole boutique guitar industry uh, almost single-handedly and this guitar is the the genesis uh, of those instruments and all those companies that have followed. It even has the, the first of Rick's hammered brass plates, uh, which also became characteristic of many of his guitars. Alligator has a hammered brass plate on the front and um, um, all, all of these, um, or a lot of these modifications uh, and then again, they started building this stuff from scratch. You know, Wolf, Wolf was a direct result of taking all of the uh, the concepts that were developed by Rick and taught to Doug, and making uh, sort of a a, a Strat like custom instrument utilizing all of these um, construction techniques. So um, I. I love this guitar not only because it's so beautiful and it's such a great guitar, so it sounds beautiful. great, it plays great, and it and it has tremendous historical significance, but it also reminds me of my dear friend Rick Turner every time I, wow. I see it or touch it. Yeah. Oh, wow. 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 I'm completely blown away right now. I I want to I want to ask a question and then I want to talk a little bit about. Um, about something so that beautiful pretzel guitar who, who got to play that so Are there any uh, musicians that we know of or might know of that got to play that beautiful well, thing i mean uh i don't know or exactly. that it was created was it created for somebody in particular no, rick, or rick, okay so so rick was a guitar player and he was trained in building furniture and jewelry those were the things that he sort of learned to do along the way. Wow. So what Rick Turner did was he said, okay, I'm a guitar player who, who knows how to build furniture and make jewelry. And that's exactly what this guitar is the result of. This is a, this is a furniture builder and a jewelry maker, you know, building uh, a, a guitar for, for himself. And so Rick kept this guitar his whole life. He gave it to his oldest son, Ethan, for his 40th birthday. And from that point until Rick died, they essentially shared uh, ownership and possession of it. And after Rick died, uh, the Turner family uh, reached out to me and told me that they thought I was the proper caretaker for the instrument. Wow. They thought it belonged in, in my collection. And, um, and, and they an knew honor. I would take care of it. So I wound up getting it from the family and I certainly intend to let, um, uh, people play it on stage moving forward when those opportunities, uh, present themselves. But the other thing I, I, I say to myself, you know, all these musicians came through Rick's shop. And they all saw what he was building or they saw, you know, they checked in on what he was making for them or whatever it may be. Well, this guitar was always present. It was always in Rick's shop. So uh, one would, would think 
that a lot of these musicians that were associated with the early days of Alembic and Rick Turner, um, that while they were in the shop and this thing was hanging on the wall, they, they probably picked it up and, and played it a little bit. I'd like to think that, that right. Garcia picked it up and played it, you know, in Rick's shop at, at some point. I don't know how wow. any, any guitar player would look up and see that on the wall and not want to take it for a spin. I just want to say, obviously, you know, uh, being a deadhead for most of my life and, you know, I knew about Rick Turner and of course about Alembic and all the, these instruments and, you know, the, the older I get and the more I'm learning, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that deep dive uh, into both those instruments, but also uh, the significance of to what to what role Rick Turner played in not just Grateful Dead music, but in that industry. Uh, I mean, wow, that's really heavy and and amazing, and I'm, I'm just I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Well, every instrument um, in in you know, after a certain point in our community, all the Doug Irwin guitars, uh, all the Alembic guitars, and, and like I said, companies like Ken Smith and Modulus and, and, and many, many, many others are all directly related back to, you know, connecting the dots back to this, this pretzel guitar. It was, it was the, the one that, that really started it all. And the other thing that's interesting about Modulus and uh, Jeff Gould, who was the, the founder of Modulus, told me that the reason he founded Modulus was because he was at Winterland in 1974 and looked up on stage and saw Phil Lesh playing Mission Control and that it changed his life. That as soon as he saw and heard Phil playing that bass, he made up his mind that he wanted to make bass guitars and that he was eventually wow. going to, to, to create a company to build uh, guitars that on some level were based on that legacy, guitars, guitars and basses. So uh, every modulus instrument uh, relates back to Mission Control and Mission Control, again, relates to... Um, this instrument very, very closely. In fact, let me show you something. Uh, again, you have the laminated neck through mm -hmm. construction, mm -hmm. sandwiched wing mm -hmm. glued to the side made of, of specific tone woods, uh, the scalloped brass nut. Um, Rick Turner was also the first guy in the rock and roll world to start doing these elaborate inlays. They just weren't yeah, done look at all those before that. Beautiful artwork, wow, yeah. those, all those inlays, wow. And um, shortly after this instrument um, showed up on stage with the Grateful Dead is when uh, Stanley Clark started playing Alembic instruments. Um, you know, oh, he noticed yeah. this This thing was pretty noticeable in the, in the, in the bass guitar world and uh, uh, McVie from Fleetwood Mac, um, John Entwistle, uh, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. They all were aware of, of, of Phil's bass, and they all went to uh, Alembic and Rick Turner to make these legendary instruments uh, 
um, that they are also known for. And there are famous uh, Alembic instruments that Rick Turner had a, had a hand in uh, that all of those guys owned and, and played on stage on a regular basis and recorded with and, and so on and so forth. Amazing. Can we get a quick shot of uh, the steely? Oh, absolutely. And I'll show you the Osiris as well. 11 points, right? 11 point bolt. 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 It's made of abalone and mother of pearl with, um, we don't know if it's gold or brass uh, snake eating its tail that is going around the the steely, but the eyes are opals. Wow. It's that it's is pretty it's pretty fantastic. Incredible. And then I'll show you its namesake, the Osiris. Osiris. You can see the Osiris. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Amazing. So this uh you know I I release the podcast as an audio uh version um and then I offer uh video uh video for patreon subscribers only so well people better uh, start subscribing so they can uh, see dude see these uh the the images that you've got here this is amazing Um, they're worth seeing for sure what what's the bass that phil's playing in that picture behind you on the wall that's the gnl that's the 1982 gnl bass or excuse me it was built in it was it was it was built in uh May of 81, Phil bought it on October 28th of 1981. And then it showed up on stage at the first show of the 1981 New Year's Eve run and uh, was replaced at the first show of the 1982 New Year's run after after being played for a year uh, by Phil's first six string modulus bass. And of course we all know that after Phil went to six strings, he never went back. So the right. GNL was the last four string bass that, that Phil played. Awesome. Uh, I just want to say that these instruments someday deserve to be in the Smithsonian uh, many years down the road. Not till I'm done. And then, right, of course. <laughs> After you're done enjoying them, and after you know, one thing, uh, one way that I know you is is seeing you uh, bring these instruments to all these different shows, uh, and having all these uh, current musicians get to play these pieces of history, which I love and I think is amazing. And what a special thing to be able to witness in person, you know, in two thousand. 24 these instruments being played by you know some of the finest players playing this music today 50th anniversary in 2024 of of this bass guitar and of course the wall of sound um right and uh you know people ask me they're like you know you know uh you know why do you bring these things out you know in in public and and let people play them and uh my short answer is always because they're more fun on stage than they are at home in a box. And uh, I figure if I'm going to, if I'm going to be fortunate enough to, to have these things that uh, as part of this community and and what this community has done for me and and my life, that what I want to do is share them with the community and let them be seen and let them be heard and experienced um, because it's just, 
it's just fun. Well, kudos to you. Uh, thank you for for sharing these instruments uh, from one fan. You know, uh, I'm really grateful every time I get to see it. It really does make that experience that much more special. Well, it does. Uh, it definitely makes it more fun. And it's interesting, you know, going back to the Grateful Guitars Foundation, which is a dual purpose situation. And I'm 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 being a little too I'm glossing over it probably a little too quickly. But basically, what the Grateful Guitars talk Foundation about it a little does. <laughs> is that we uh, we we build really fine, wonderful, high-quality instruments for deserving musicians. So we support the musicians, the community, the luthiers that are part of this legacy. And the other thing that we do is we get these stage-played historic instruments back on stages to share with the community. There's, I think it's, I think it's close to a dozen instruments total owned by um, uh, four different members of the board. And we all, um, we all endeavor to get these things out on stages. Andy and I, many years ago, we talked about the whole idea that in the classical music community and in that world, the best instruments, the Stradivarius violins and cellos and these wonderful instruments have always, for hundreds of years, been loaned to the best musicians to be shared with the community. It's, it's just been the way, it, the way it always is. But for whatever the reason, be. The, the rock and roll world sort of missed the boat on that. The rock and roll world, people would buy them and, and hoard them in their man cave. And Andy right. and I wanted to make a like concerted effort to change that trend and to make it the the cool and accepted and the right thing to do if you're going to collect this type of thing to make them available to share with the community and so that's that's something that we've been very um uh, very conscious of and and very deliberate about uh, about what we're doing Right on. Well, I appreciate you guys doing that. I'm sure so many others do as well. And you can uh, go to the Grateful Guitars Foundation website and uh, and you can donate uh, to the foundation and, and help support what we're doing and help get these uh, instruments built for your favorite musicians and, and help facilitate getting these things uh, put on stages for, for people to enjoy. Uh, I'll put that, make sure that that website gets put on my, uh, on my website as well, that link. Uh, I did get to witness you gifting a, a guitar, gifting a bass to Skip of Darkstar at the Grateful Guitars Foundation benefit show at the Great American Music Hall uh, a few months ago. I can't remember exactly when that was, but that was a really special night. And wow, what an assembly of players uh, and, and music that happened that night. That was totally really special. Yeah, that was really incredible. That was the who's who of, of Grateful Dead tribute band musicians all coming together for uh, a special cause and a special night. Um, and everybody that played was so talented that yeah. there was a level of confidence between all these musicians, many of whom had never met or played together before. And everybody knew that everybody else was so good. 
that they would walk on stage. I saw literally saw people walk on stage, introduce themselves to each other, and 30 seconds later be just ripping it up. And everybody had confidence in everybody else. So the level of, of play and musicianship was just off the oh, charts. Yeah. And, and, then, and the un, night was unreal. seamless. I mean, we had yeah. different instruments and different musicians coming on and off stage all night long. And there was, was never even a hiccup. And, and um, I got to give some, some special love and special credit to Alex Jordan, who was our musical director that night. And yes, also John yep. Hart, Great who job. was our, our stage manager and uh, just, just did a fantastic job. Uh, can and you also list some of the musicians? Thank the Great American Music Hall for having us to be able to do that event on the anniversary on that date in that building was incredibly special. And we all know the Great American is one of the all-time great music venues, and and we were honored one of my to favorite be there venues of all time. And uh, mm -hmm. and and look forward to doing more with those guys. And that, so just to go back to that a little bit, so that was on the anniversary of, was that the the night that the Grateful Dead played there That's in correct. 1975, That's debuting uh, the August album 13th. Blues for Allah for the first time, Correct, right? August 13th. Uh, which was, they had taken that break. That was in the middle of the break That's right. that they had taken from 74. Uh, yeah. Wow. That was, and, yeah, and you this could was feel the bass that the was played, This was the bass that was played on stage that night. This is the bass that you'll hear on, on one from the vault. And so right. it was really fun to put it back up on that same stage on the anniversary yeah. of that show and even play some of those same tunes. I have goosebumps again. That was really cool. <laughs> Me too. Every day. Seriously. Uh, so list, list, name some of the musicians that were there. I, I remember thinking it was really cool that Brian Rashap uh, was oh, yeah. there and, and playing. I love Brian Rashap. He, uh, so on bass, we had we had Brian Rashap. Love love me some Brian Rashap. Uh, he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we had Roger Seidman. Uh, and we also had, of course, the one and only uh, Skip uh, from, from Dark Star. Um, on, on, on lead guitar, we had um, John Kadlasik. We had Stu Allen, we had Jeff Matson, we had Zach Nugent, and we had Garrett Delanian. Um, and Alex Jordan. It, well, in the in the in the in the weir role, we had Alex Jordan, okay. we had yep. Nate Lapointe, and we had the one and only Rob Eaton. Um, yeah. On drums, we had uh, Jeremy from JGB and Dino from mm -hmm. from Dark Star. Dino English. Uh, yep, and and then on keyboards we had uh, Rob Baracco and and Danny Eisenberg, uh, and and I if I remember correctly, I think Alex even played a little a little uh, piano that night, um, and we also had Elliot Peck and Sunshine Garcia Becker. Uh, That's right. Doing some lending some 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 vocal stylings that night. So to say it was um, the best collection of Grateful Dead tribute band musicians ever assembled, I think would actually still be an understatement. Yeah, I would say it still doesn't quite do it justice. That was amazing. It was crushing. So let's uh, 
Okay, so 2024, we're, today is January 30th, 2024. Um, the hope is that Mission Control will make an appearance at Skull and Roses Festival this year, right? 50th anniversary of the Wall of Sound. That's my hope as uh, well. There might be. Uh, so we're hoping that that shows up. Um, it seems like it should. Uh, where else should we expect to see Mission Control, Pretzel, any of the other instruments this year any any plans um well um i think it's very likely that and i don't know when this podcast will air but i'm going uh up to see dark star in uh, menlo park and in san francisco and in monterey and in napa uh, starting on thursday and i think it's probably pretty likely that mission control will make one or more appearances during those those shows. Um, and as far as anything else, um, I don't have anything in particular on the calendar, uh, but that's not to say that I don't I don't do I, I try to do this every opportunity I get. Um, sure. I, I've, I've let um, uh, uh, or I should say I've been privileged privileged enough to hear uh, Sun Bo from Jerry's Middle Finger play mm -hmm. both Mission Control and uh, Phil's G&L at different shows. Wow. Um, and um, there's there's uh, Sam Grisman from the Sam Grisman Project played yeah. Phil's G&L uh, at their very first ever gig as a band uh, last year in San Diego. And wow. that, was, that was great. Love Sam. Uh, he comes over on a regular basis and and sits around and and plays all the bass guitars. This is this is his all time favorite. Um, yeah. And um, so I, you know, I I look at any reasonable opportunity to share them with the community as as a as a as a good a good thing. Uh, and like you said, um, assuming we get all the details worked out with Skull and Roses. I am uh, optimistic that uh, we will have um, uh, mission control there to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the of the wall and of the base itself, um, especially with the the wall of sound theme that they have embraced. Um, but I think right. that there will be a number of instruments there uh, in the way of guitars and bass guitars. Right on. All right. Fingers crossed. Fingers, Fingers crossed. crossed. Me too. All right. Um, uh, you know, uh, just real quick, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I haven't seen Sam Grisman project yet, but I got to say, I've heard nothing but like stellar things. Like people rave about how amazing they are. Is it uh, okay to curse? So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. They are yeah, yeah. There's no fucking there. believable. <laughs> That's what I hear I'm time and time again over and over again. Murderer's row of musicians. Uh, wow. Everybody on that stage is just oozing with, with talent. Uh, all these young guys that are old souls that, that not only play at an incredibly high level, but with um, tremendous um, uh, genuine um, love for, for the music. And they also really get into a lot of music that is somewhat obscure that 
that we're not as familiar with as we should be. And they're helping us become familiar with it as well as putting a, a fresh twist on a lot of these really beloved songs. So I would encourage anybody to, to, to do whatever you got to do to go see that band. They are, they are fantastic. That's what I hear over and over again. Cool. Well, thanks for the plug for your Sam Grison project. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, Sam's a, a, a hell of a good guy. I, I just, love I just enjoy too. him as a, as a human being as well. And that's always, always it's always her. nice when you see musicians and they're really, they're, they're people that you, that you really appreciate from that perspective. And then you get to know them and you appreciate them even more as human beings. Um, yep. You know, Bobby Weir, I spent a good bit of my life following old Bobby Weir around and on the opportunities that I've had uh, to spend time with him and work with him. He has been just the most gracious and and classy and generous and uh, kind individual. And uh, when you when you when that becomes apparent to you, uh, it 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 really validates the time and energy that we've spent uh, doing what we love. Great way to put that. Yeah. It really, really brings it home and really solidifies it. Yeah. Great way to put that. Yeah. Um, and thanks for sharing that about Bobby. I love hearing that too. Love that, me some Bobby Weir. Amazing. Yeah. Love us some Bobby. Listen, I feel weird. Uh, I, I mean, this has been such an incredible deep dive. I feel like we could talk for, hours about this i could listen for hours uh, about this i've been blown away uh by all that you've graciously shared and i want to hear more um for the sake of time and people's attention spans uh as we start winding it down i do have a a list of questions that i want to ask you well i will say this um what we can do at some point down the road if you like is we can do another uh, podcast and we can just focus on, uh, the collection one instrument at a time and just go through the, 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 the instruments and how they relate to our scene and our community and how they relate to each other. And, uh, some, some little tidbits about each one. And, and that'll give, uh, that'll give us an opportunity to be, uh, more thorough with, with some of that stuff without, uh, without making this one too long. I think that's a great idea and I'm definitely going to take you up on that. That's awesome. Thank you for offering that. My yeah, pleasure. Absolutely. I'm stoked. Okay. So I have a list of questions I want to ask you. Um, meant to be, you know, quick answers as we run down, but feel free to expound it if you, if you like. Uh, some of them are either or or ABC. Okay. Was the Grateful Dead a punk band? No. Take that however however you like. No. Okay. Do you have a favorite show that you come back to? No, but I have a handful of favorite shows. Okay, uh, do you want to list a couple? I, I can, if you want me to kind of go over a few of them, I can go over a few that sure. were. Um, okay. My first show, still one of the best shows I ever saw. Scarlet Fire Estimated Comes a Time. Forget about it. Um, let's see. Bonner Springs, Bonner Springs in 91. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, your first first show. Uh, well, no, Bonner Springs was not my first show. Bonner Springs was my first summer tour. 
And but your first show, what, what was the date? That of was your twelve first... twenty seven ninety. Twenty seven ninety. Yeah, okay. scorching. Like I said, go back and listen to that sugary. It's forget. It's unbelievable. Um, my my initiation into the Grateful Dead was 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 pretty solid. Um, uh, summer tour ninety one. The, the both Bonner Spring shows were off the charts, but the second night uh, especially. Um, also happened to be a comes a time night. Um, let's see. Um, uh, 9-20-91, the help slip fire on the mountain from Boston garden, scorching mm. show start to finish. Um, and, and, and still maybe the best bird song I ever saw to close the first set. Um, 9-26-91, uh, with the, uh, just, Com completely over the top set list that is actually, you know, as good as good to your ears as it is on paper. And the last performance of We Bid You Good Night by the Grateful Dead left me oh. sobbing like a baby. Um, uh, 12, tw uh, 12, 16, 92 uh, at, at Oakland, um, which is just. I mean, the whole show is phenomenal, but the second set is just as good as it gets. Um, uh, and then just kind of off the bat, I, also the the Scarlet Fire from MSG from 1994. Uh, some people like to pick on some of the later years, but go back and listen to that Scarlet Fire and, and it compares with, with just about any of them. Um, so there's there's a handful, there's definitely some others um, but those, that's a handful of, of, of definite favorites. Awesome. Thank you. How about favorite Grateful Dead tribute band? I know that's not a fair question. Well, um, I, I think, I think that dark star is, is just as good as it gets and they're just on fire right now. And I'll tell you, Zach Nugent and dead set is just just mind-blowing how good they are i mean they're just they're phenomenal they're at they're at a level and a lot of people haven't seen that band um and they're going to be at skull and roses this year they will. and yeah. uh my my advice is see that band um also a huge fan uh and this is you know the garcia band uh world but jerry's middle finger is yeah just over the top, phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Melvin and JK with with JGB. I mean, yeah. that band is phenomenal. Jerry Jeremy's mm -hmm. phenomenal. JP's phenomenal. I mean, that's 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 a good time. Um, yeah, I agree. And uh, there's a lot of really good, you know, dead cover bands. I was telling a friend of mine last night that there are more um, legitimate dead cover bands in each major city in the United States than there are of any other band ac across, across the country and maybe the world. Uh, I mean, you know, how many really good Beatles tribute bands or Zeppelin tribute bands or Pink Floyd tribute bands? Yeah, there's a few, but not as many, you know, as, as like I said, any, just any major city alone, um, you know, usually has, five, six, seven, eight, ten, you know, really good Grateful Dead cover bands. San Diego's got a, a, a stack of them. 
and you can go out and see good Grateful Dead music, you know, just about any night of the week in San Diego and certainly in the Bay Area and in lots of other cities. Yep. This music is more alive than it's ever been. Yeah. I feel like right now. It's amazing. We're so we're so lucky. All right. Hey, Jason, thanks so much, dude. Really appreciate that. That was very, uh, very kind of you to, to share all that with us. So uh, I really enjoyed that. Okay. You can find out more information about Jason and Grateful Guitars Foundation on my website, uh, deadtortales.com. I'll post uh, socials, links, and uh, some more information on there for you, as well as a link for you to check out Grateful Guitars Foundation. Dead Tour Tales is brought to you by your friendly neighborhood dead merch company, Always a Hoot Studios. Let's give a big thanks to our producer, Kevin Grandpa Kev McCracken, and our editor, Ford Chelberg. And as always, the Grateful Dead for being the soundtrack to our lives. Don't forget to check out all our killer merch at alwaysahootstudios.com. And uh, I'm now doing a, an exclusive uh, 22% discount for my podcast listeners. So if you're listening to this and you shop in my store, uh, please enjoy a 22% discount by using sale code PODCAST22. Uh, that's all caps. So put that in the appropriate place as you're checking out and uh, you'll enjoy a, a store-wide 22% discount. That's a, a thank you for all your support. So, all right. Uh, lastly, please check out our Patreon where you can subscribe for a few measly pennies a month, have the opportunity to receive access to our bonus video footage, sticker packs, t-shirts, maybe an opportunity for a live call into the show or even appear on an episode to talk with me about your experience in the Grateful Dead universe. I'd love to have you. Uh, so reach out, uh, james at alwaysahootstudios.com. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you out on the road sometime. In the meantime, make sure you come back and check out next week's episode. It's going to be a hoot.